Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans. Welcome to the Peristyle Podcast on a Wednesday. It's Thanksgiving week. It's Notre Dame week. I hope you all are having a wonderful Thanksgiving holiday. Safe travels to everybody. If you're listening to the show as you're flying on a plane or driving in a car, maybe riding on a train, whatever you're doing, thank you for listening to us in our little show. We got a lot of USC Notre Dame talk today before I get into all of that. I wanted to let you know, if you want to email the show, you can do that podcast at uscfootball.com. Or if you like to text or call us, any questions, any comments, 424-254-9141 is the number. We do love to hear from you. And if you're on iTunes, if listening to us there, please leave us a five-star rating. Uh, some positive feedback is great, or any of the other platforms. We're on Stitcher Radio, Google Play, uh, Google Podcasts, all that stuff. Um, yeah, Audio Boom, please leave us some uh, positive feedback. We do appreciate that. Tell your friends, the USC fans, hey, you might want to listen to the Peristyle Podcast. We're producing multiple shows a week. Of course, lots of stuff going up, up on content-wise on uscfootball.com. We like to talk about it all here on the podcast. Okay, so big show today. You guys had some leftover questions about... UCLA game, you know, Clay Helton's future and stuff. I'll, I'll answer those a little bit later on. We're also going to have Tim O'Malley, who works for Irish Illustrated, covers the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. He's been doing it for years. So we're going to get him on and give us a preview of USC and Notre Dame because I know a lot of you aren't talking about it, but there's actually a huge game this weekend for USC. Bowl eligibility is on the line for Notre Dame a berth in the college football playoffs. So it's a really important game. We're going to talk about that with Tim O'Malley. And I'm ex- extremely excited. Later in the show, Thomas Rupp. So you might not have heard of him. If you haven't, we're going to talk about him. We're going to talk to him. There's an awesome book called Rockney and Jones, Notre Dame, USC, and the greatest rivalry of the Roaring Twenties. So it's a great book, a lot of amazing history of how this rivalry came to be the two big coaches that were involved in it, Newt Rockney and Howard Jones. You know you know Howard Jones from the uh, practice field at USC. It's named after Howard Jones. So, And I'm sure you've heard of Newt Rockney. So there's, uh, it's a really interesting book. We're going to talk to Thomas a little bit later on the show. He will be in studio chatting with us. So I'm very excited for that. So lots of USC uh, Notre Dame talk in this show. So hopefully a little something for everybody. Now before... We jump into that. I want to let you know about Robinhood, all our listeners out there. It's an investing app that will let you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission-free. So what they do is strive to make financial services work for everyone, not just the wealthy. It's a really easy way, non-intimidating, to buy stocks, bonds, things like that. For any stock market newcomers, you can invest for the first time with true confidence, What I like about this app is you learn by doing. You can discover new stocks and track your favorite companies with their own personalized news feed. And there's custom notifications. So if a stock moves, there's price movements. You'll never miss the right time and moment to invest. I used to do some trading back in my engineering days. And you're always paying high commissions 
Uh, these are free. So there's no $10 commission to trade. These are free uh, with Robinhood. So, and right now, Robinhood is giving our listeners a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint. It will help you build your portfolio. So you sign up at uscfootball.robinhood.com. That's uscfootball.robinhood.com. All right, let's switch things up and start talking USC Notre Dame. And as promised, we have uh, Tim O'Malley. does a great job covering the Notre Dame Fighting Irish for Irish Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at Tim O'Malley, M-A-L-L-E-Y-N-D for Notre Dame. Uh, Follow him on Twitter. Tim, thanks for coming on the show. What's up, man? Hey, thanks, Ryan. Good to be here. Yeah, I'm excited. You know, I'm bummed. You know, your, your boy went over to the athletic like everybody else, like so, so many people are doing. But uh, you guys are all coming out together, that, so that should be cool. I know you guys like to go to the post in Manhattan Beach. Uh, hopefully you guys have a fun time while you're out here. Yeah, we're all hitting Manhattan Beach post again, and uh, we all just finished up. We actually still stay together on the Irish Illustrated podcast. We just wrapped that up today, and uh, we'll be reconvening at some point, I would, I would think maybe mid-afternoon, hopefully, in, in Manhattan Beach, as uh, I think the weekend can start early this time. Yeah, nice. Uh, Pete Sampson, if you know, though, he's a longtime uh, yeah. friend of the show. But it's fun to see him and uh, Jake Brown have kind of moved on. But, you know, it's it's great because you guys do an amazing job. So if you want to check out uh, all the content about the Notre Dame Fighting Irish, make sure you go to Irish Illustrated. It's part of the 24-7 Sports Network. But, man, it's a pretty different team than we saw just a couple of years ago. I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, the four and eight and like, wow, this, this isn't that good of a team. And then, you know, making a whole bunch of staff changes and now knocking on the door of the college football playoff. It's a serious role, serious role reversal. That's for sure. I mean, it is, you know, Brian, you said the staff changes and that was the key. Brian Kelly hit home runs when he made the staff changes. And I will never forget a subscriber question when all this was going on that, you know, they are keeping Kelly but Kelly was changing out his strength and conditioning. And that was a big deal because it was his good friend that had been with him since the central Michigan days. So strength and conditioning offensive coordinator who was in his wedding defensive coordinator, which they had obviously fired, you know, during the season, but they were moving on from the interim who did a pretty good job at Mike Elson. Um, and they retained him on staff. But when you go three for three for offensive coordinator, defensive coordinator and strength and conditioning, this kind of thing can happen. Um, I know USC fans would I don't know if they want to hear that because it means to retain the head coach. <laughs> but And I don't think it's probably the way to go normally, but it sure did work for Notre Dame. Um, it, it, it lent some stability. Some of it might be that there was not a great option out there. You know, that was the year um, it was clear that Herman was going to Texas, in that, if you kind of go back to that time in 2016. And uh, Justin Fuente had already gone to Virginia Tech. He was no longer the hot candidate because he was, he was kind of zapped up by the Hokies there. So you really didn't know who they are going to hire. Um, and it was. It turns out it worked out well because they are twenty-one and three now, uh, ever since making those changes. And you really cannot overstate what it was to change the staff out like that. One of the interesting decisions we see college coaches make, and we saw uh, Nick Saban do this last year in the national championship game. When you switch quarterbacks from a quarterback that was winning, uh, you know, an undefeated quarterback for at least the season, to make a switch, I mean, it takes a little bit of a. I mean, it takes some guts, I think, to do something like that. Uh, maybe talk to the USC fans about what happened with the quarterback situation this year, why the change was made, and what it's meant for the team. Yeah, Wimbush, you know, he was he was 3-0 this year, uh, including beating Michigan. But the offense, it was just pulling teeth. I mean, they were they get a couple touchdowns. They'd hang on. They'd stress the defense. You know, Vanderbilt really is the team that almost beat Notre Dame this year. I know that, that Pittsburgh was lost by five, but – 
Vandy had the ball and was driving for the win, and Notre Dame got a stop on fourth down um, on a pass that would have been caught inside the 10. And the way they were playing, they were going in for the win. Um, at that point, I think Brian Kelly realized, and he has said this since, we're going to break. And he meant the whole team. They can't keep supporting an offense that is one-dimensional. It was not running what Chip Long, the offensive coordinator, wants to do, which is a lot of short passing to complement the running game, a lot of play action. It takes guts, man, because Brandon Wimbush was 12-3 and three as a starter. You know, he had a couple of bad moments um, last year in November, and he was replacing the bowl game by book. So it wasn't out of this world, but I, I don't think of many coaches that make a change when you're 3-0, and and I think they were number 8 or 9 at that point because they had beaten Michigan. Yeah, a stroke of genius because Ian Book is a lot better uh, <laughs> as a college quarterback as a quarterback than Brandon Wimbush. And you know, there's rumors that Chip Long wanted Book the whole time, and and Brian Kelly somewhat addressed it by saying, "We felt we could not beat Michigan without Brandon Wimbush's athletic ability because he thought that the skill position guys were young and inexperienced, and basically Wimbush had to be the man that day." Which I mean, he ran 19 times. He, he kind of was. So if, if that's all true, man, he, Brian Kelly has really orchestrated quite a season here because the. To move on the book after that, they, their offense has taken off. It is it is way better than it was. If they're eleven and zero right now, it would be the biggest paper eleven and zero all time with Brandon Wimbush. But they are really good with Ian Book. Yeah, and uh, I don't know what USC fans are going to think about that because Brandon Wimbush had a pretty good game against the Trojans last year. Yeah. So if you're talking about switching quarterbacks to somebody better, I don't know how, what that what that means. Yeah, he, he did have a great game that uh, that day. That, I think a lot of that was the running game and the offensive line. But he had he had one of his best days. Uh, they were on fire that day. But Book is uh, I like to say Book rolls out of bed with thirty points, and whatever else happens is just how you do in the red zone and how the breaks go your way because they're they're really hard to stop with Book. I mean, it is a he is so accurate. He's right now he's the second most accurate quarterback for one season in college football history behind Colt McCoy. Uh, he will not catch McCoy no matter what I think happens. But um, part of that is he's going to have eight starts, of course, instead of 12. But I'm, Chip Long used to say that when Brandon Wimbush, <laughs> not really a nice thing to say, but that it was always an audition for the catch of the day when Wimbush was throwing those horizontal <laughs> passes. <laughs> and uh, Ian Book puts it on the money, and it, it, it's something along the lines of he's completed 56 of 58 passes behind the line in the average almost eight yards of play on those throws. So that, that – kind of is the maddening extension of the running game you hear coaches talk about when it's, it's really not an extension of anything. It's just a passing game. Yeah. Well, they, it really seems that way with Book because it's a layup when he throws these short passes. I love that, the catch of the day thing because that's kind of the USC <laughs> offense. Yeah. It's like throwing it up to like, I mean, they got five-star wide receivers, so uh, it's, you know, they can do it. But yeah, it's kind of like, oh, who's going to get the catch of the day uh, today? Uh, but you mentioned the offensive line and, uh, you know, I thought, you know, losing some of the the talent to the NFL from last year. Obviously, it was one of the, you know I think probably the best offensive line in the country last year. But it seems like it's got better as the season wore on. Maybe there was some criticism early, but it, it, has the line got a lot better as the season wore on? Yeah, they made one change. Uh, well, Alex Bars, their best player, got hurt against Stanford, um, and and after that they kind of struggled. They went with the veteran kind of a moved a backup center senior to guard just because of, of the trust factor. You know how coaches can kind of go to that crutch. Since the, since the bye week, they put in redshirt freshman Aaron Banks, who's their biggest lineman now. So you you kind of have added beef to the line, and I think that's their identity is, right, we're going to try to maul you now. Um, so they're, they're mildly inconsistent. Now, if you talk to a Notre Dame fan and say they're semifinals for the Joe Moore Award, they'll kind of scoff at that because they remember last year's team that was just bulldozing everybody. I don't, they're nowhere near as good as last year, but they do have their moments. And when you look at the end of the game – they have very good days. It just seems like you have to absorb some of those tackles for losses 
and stuff that you don't think of with great lines. But, you know, you look down, all of a sudden they have 300 yards passing and 200 yards rushing. So, obviously, they did their job. Right. Uh, it's been a heck of a coach. It's been a heck of a job by Jeff Quinn, who had to replace Harry Heastan. And, you know, more important than Harry Heastan is Quentin Nelson and Mike McGlinchey. And then you lose your best player in bars. So, they've done a great job. It is no longer the situation, though, where you think, all right, Notre Dame is going to go in with this offensive line, and that's why they're going to win a playoff game. I think it's you know Ian Book in the defense, but uh, the line is is solid, if not uh, if not of the caliber of last season. Yeah, let's let's talk about the defense a little bit because uh, you know I you know Notre Dame beat Michigan early. Michigan people talk about Michigan's being you know Michigan being the maybe the best defense in the country, but it seems like Notre Dame's is right up there. What's maybe talk about some of the strengths of this uh, defensive unit for the Fighting Irish? Yeah, it's the pass rush. They have uh, three juniors that have come into their own um, in J- Julian Aquara, Khalid Kareem, and Dalen Hayes. And Hayes is, of course, briefly a USC commit. Yeah. Um, but he, yeah, he, he doesn't start ahead of Aquara, but Hayes comes in in the nickel package where they have those three guys plus Jerry Tillery. And uh, they, those four, just the four of them alone can wreak havoc in the nickel. And then you have seven guys in coverage. And as you know, any pass rush that can get at you with four consistently really helps the defense. And, they just hit absolute home runs at these three juniors because Notre Dame does not recruit defensive ends well. It is the number one issue they have in recruiting under Brian Kelly is, is the defensive tackle that can hold the point, but they got a couple of those. But the pass rushing ends, they just whiff on 80% of the guys they go after. The <laughs> projects don't work out. and These guys, they're, they're, they're four-star players, so they weren't projects. But to have them all work out to this extent is the key to the season. I really think if you start with Notre Dame football this year, it's pass rush one, the move to Ian Book two. Because remember, they, they beat three teams without Book, or now four teams without Book. And then and three is an improvement in the secondary. The, the safeties last year at Notre Dame, zero interceptions, and I like to say fewer plays on the ball for, for my Elko's defense. But this year, uh, it's Alohi Gilman, which is a Navy transfer, and I, I know people will find that crazy to think that the two-star Navy transfer came in and started for Notre Dame immediately. But he's one of the better players back there, and, and then there's just improvement from the other guy, Jalen Elliott, who basically – was kind of like the 11th man on the 11-man defense last year. They, their safeties are really good. Their corners are good. And when you couple that with a pass rush, as you said, it's one of the better defenses in the country. Um, not necessarily the, the best run D they've had, but really good. And uh, I will say one thing for the future. I don't know how much it holds true for USC. Notre Dame has played a lot of one-dimensional offenses, and that would not be the case if they were playing on December 29th, as you know. Yeah, for sure. Um, interesting. Uh, last week, USC played against a – UC Davis transfer who ran for almost 300 yards against them. So we'll see what a Navy transfer. Yeah, the do. Navy transfer had two picks last week against Syracuse. So it, it's not saying, I mean, <laughs> he's one of those guys that, you know, he, he probably could have gone somewhere else. Obviously he has a chip on his shoulder um, and he's undersized. This is probably part of it, but he's, uh, it's, it's quite a, quite a thing. And he's kind of reopened the uh, Hawaiian recruiting because he's from Hawaii and you oh. know, he's obviously with Manti Teo and all that. Yeah. It's Alohi Gilman. And, uh, he, he did lead Navy. He kind of told uh, Coach Nima Tololo, I, I want to play pro. And I, I'm sure he started as a freshman at Navy, so he can play. But, you know, starting as a freshman at Navy is not the same as walking into Notre Dame and being the best safety on the roster. And that's that's what he did. So I, I think a lot of fans like him because you, you tend to uh, embrace the two-star underdog. But the way he plays, he doesn't have a lot of two-star underdog in him, really. Nice. Uh, what about the special teams units for Notre Dame? How have they looked this year? I would, uh, and, and this is what you mentioned, Pete Sampson, we like to say, if you have one thing to do against Notre Dame on Saturday if you're USC is return every kick, no matter how deep it is and how well-placed <laughs> it is, because their kickoff coverage stinks. So what you want to do is take your chances, use your athletes, and try to return it. It's, it's literally why 
Pittsburgh had a chance to beat them. They had a kick return touchdown among their 13 points, excuse me, 14 points. And it's why Michigan had a chance to tie late because they got a kick return touchdown too. It's at one point they had 19 kickoffs and two touchdowns. We used to joke that could they possibly have a one more and make it, you know, 30 kickoffs and, and three touchdowns would be 10% of the time. It's a touchdown on you. So wow. yeah, their special teams stinks in that way. Uh, the kicker's really good. Justin Yoon, he's the all-time leading scorer at Notre Dame. They're going to miss him next year. They don't really have a backup kicker. Uh, Yoon has to kick off right now because the kickoff specialist they got has the yips. I don't know how you have two years of yips as a kickoff specialist, but <laughs> he has brought some very colorful words from Brian Kelly coming to the sideline asking him what the heck is going on. <laughs> but he kicks the ball to the 10 and out of bounds. So, yeah, kickoff coverage, kickoff bad. Uh, Justin Yoon, great. And then you know, Tyler Newsom is a uh, he's actually a captain as a punter. Another weird thing about wow. the Notre Dame team. Uh, yeah, he's the he's the second uh, best punter in terms of numbers in Notre Dame history, uh, behind Craig Hendrick. You remember the million dollar punter, the first guy that made a million in the NFL. But he does have the occasional shank too. It's kind of weird. He averages about forty five yards a punt, but seems like once a game goes about thirty. So we, <laughs> I don't know how those numbers work out, but uh, he he occasionally has the shank. But yeah, they have a a, a Navy transfer starting and a punter as a captain. On an 11 and no Notre Dame team. Very, very interesting. He was actually pretty decent at the kick return game for the most part. So maybe that's a little, maybe something that keeps it a little closer. Who knows? Yeah, um, that's that's the way to get him. <laughs> yeah, that'd be kind of interesting. What about, um, you know, a lot of times you see a team that's 11 and 0 and they have like their turnover margins like through the roof or something. Is it what's like the turnover margin penalty situation sort of been with Notre Dame? Yeah, the penalties have started to pick up a little because we talked about the the new line. They had a uh, there's really no excuse for one of them because this would be his second year starting. Robert Hansey had three false starts against Syracuse. They eventually just took him out, kind of asking him, you know, what what are you doing? We can't have that. Now he was going against a really good pass rusher at Alton Robinson, but you know, other teams have really good pass rushers too. <laughs> so yeah, they've they've had they've had some penalties and false starts that have kind of me- uh, messed up the operation in the red zone. But in terms of turnover, it, it's not like they build their defense on turnovers. They really, this is probably a compliment, they, they build their defense on three and outs. I mean, Syracuse had 11 three and outs in that game last week, which is amazing wow. against that off. So they, they don't turn it over a lot because, you know, their book's not turnover prone and Notre Dame's running backs don't fumble, but it's not like they've been remarkable. Uh, Brandon Wimbush is probably two touchdowns with six picks in his four starts. And Ian Book has, I believe, thrown four picks in his eight starts, and there's one he kind of tossed up on fourth down too, you know, where you had to throw it. But he's unlikely to throw a pick. Um, the running backs haven't fumbled, haven't lost a fumble since they played in Fenway Park in 2015, so they don't turn it over a lot. Um, there's the occasional wide receiver fumble like everybody has, but they kind of built it on being solid and, and just playing really good defense. It, it's not one of those things where Notre Dame has 20 more turnovers and they're getting getting fortunate, which is, you know, you've had a couple teams like that that came to USC in the past, the, the Carson Palmer days. Notre Dame brought a defense in that I think scored more touchdowns than the offense had for a while on the Irish. <laughs> it, it's not one of those things. They're they're just kind of they're just a really strong defense and uh, and the offense, of course, is, is is well coached this year. If I remember anything, it's the last time a running back fumbled was at Fenway Park. So that's uh, that, Fenway they, Park. In fact, they all fumbled. It was like every running back fumbled that day. <laughs> <laughs> the intimidating monster, maybe that was. Uh, you know, yeah, I guess I so. <laughs> well, we we thought they might fumble at Yankee Stadium, but they did. So they no, that, that cycle. Yep. Was well, interesting. So Ian Book's not really turnover prone. USC picked up its third interception of the year against UCLA. <laughs> I saw so that. Not a lot of. Uh, they they actually tip a lot of balls, but 
not really getting a lot of interceptions. But you know, typically when you see a team that's eleven and zero, they're not going to be turning the ball over a lot. That 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 leads to right. a loss or two every once in a while. Yeah, I, yeah, I saw that three interception stat, and just just knowing the corners, I I guess if you break up a lot of passes, maybe you're just not you know getting lucky and getting the picks. But that's it. It's just a very small number for like whatever it was, three hundred and ninety passes or something. I, I was really yeah. surprised to see that because yeah, that's, if you're breaking on balls, you figure you catch a few of them, right? Yeah, a lot of it's coming from the defensive line and linebackers, though. So maybe not as okay, much as yeah. yeah. So it's not it's not like you know there's a ton there. They got a lot of experience there. There's been uh, for USC's defense has been more banged up on the defensive side. Really, the the underperformance has been coming on the on the offensive side. So I'm curious to see because USC some days they run the ball well. Uh, they, I like their you know trio of running backs. You know when if Stephen Carr's healthy, but. Man, UCLA has a pretty bad run defense, and USC kind of abandoned it and didn't really do much. So I, I'm curious to see what happens in in this one, especially with a good pass rush. Uh, you know, you got a freshman quarterback uh, getting pushed around a little bit. I, it could be some some problems for USC up front in this one against this Notre Dame defense. Yeah, I would think you would have. This is probably going to be frustrating for any USC fan that's angry, but I would think you would have to run, even if you have to take your tackles for loss and stuff, because you have to. You got to keep them honest if they're going to be teeing off on you. And you know Notre Dame's Notre Dame's pass rush in the nickel is at its best. That is when they bring in. That's when Dalen Hayes enters the field. They they take out a nose tackle and they put four athletes up there. So, I mean, if you could just make it third and six, you're saving yourself a little bit. You know, as, yeah. as opposed to those third and tens where you have no shot. So, I'm sure that's what the frustration is. Is I know Brian Kelly at, at the beginning of his tenure used to abandon the run at the first sign or abandon the run at the first sign of trouble. Um, Chip Long calls the plays now, and they they run no matter what at Notre Dame. And uh, nothing was more frustrating. I remember the 2011 game against USC to look down and see that Notre Dame carried the ball 14 times that game at home. Wow. <laughs> you know, I'm not sure Dane Chris and Tommy Reese had to throw all those passes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, that, you don't you don't want to abandon the run unless you have Patrick Mahomes, and, and that's not the situation right now. <laughs> um, I, I think we talked about this over email a little bit. Maybe share your thoughts here. It's weird. It's been a weird couple of weeks covering the USC beat because of most of the talk is about um, you know the future of Clay Helton. Like talk, you know USC UCLA. It's a huge thing in Los Angeles, and I mean there was the smallest crowd since the 1950s for a game like that. Uh, there hasn't been a whole lot of. Talk. I mean, people. I think it's like a foregone conclusion that USC is going to get blown out in this game from a lot of USC fans. They're they're really more worried about um, you know, like I said, the the head coach. But to me, it. I'm not sure on the USC side, they could come out motivated. They could come out kind of flat like they did against UCLA, but I don't think there's a question about motivation on the Notre Dame side. Maybe kind of talk about, you know, what this game means to, to Notre Dame. Uh, yeah. Brian Kelly rarely references the next game on Saturday and he just brought up unsolicited. They know who they're playing next week. So I, I think if there was going to be a letdown, it would have been if somehow this game was randomly played yet last week. And then you had Syracuse after that, because yeah, we talked about this, in our in our column exchange, I mean Notre Dame guys know who Florida State and USC players are. They they grew up around them in camps. They know about all these players. I think you probably had more trouble convincing Notre Dame that a team like Pittsburgh can beat them than you would Florida State, even though Florida State is terrible. They yeah. just know all those players, and I think that the brand does mean something. And it's just like I mean Notre Dame went out there with two bad teams in, in fourteen and sixteen, and USC lit them up. I don't think USC was thinking, well, Notre Dame's not that good this year. You know, I think they right. think Notre Dame's coming and. Let, let, let's put one on them. But uh, at 11-0, I would assume that they'll be pretty focused on this game. And 
uh, <laughs> there's actually been some odd, some questions in the local media. They're like, you know, is it, is it hard to focus at 11 No, this is the only time it's easy to focus. So I, I would think you would see a focused Notre Dame team. Now, the thing with USC for me would be, I, I would guess that their weeks of practice aren't great when you lose to Cal and UCLA, but everybody tries on Saturday, right? So if breaks go your way early, that probably, that probably keeps your motivation very high. And if breaks don't go your way is probably when the, uh, it starts to kind of wheels fall off the wagon of these games. Yeah, I would think for, it's on the USC side where, you know, players openly talk about supporting Clay Helton. So, uh, I mean, I think they had a chance to play for him last week and it didn't look like they did. Uh, yeah. But you could see them turning around like, man, we really have to because it, a bull bid is on the line for for USC. Um, so there's, there's something to play for. But obviously Notre Dame trying to make the college football playoff. I just can't see any sort of overlooking. It's like you're... You know, the, if you're a mile 20 of the marathon, it really sucks. You know, like you could see like your mind wandering, yeah. but yeah. you're you're like in that last quarter mile or something. Yeah, I don't see the focus going anywhere else. I stopped when I ran half marathon, so mile 20 <laughs> would really anger me. When I hit mile 11, I that's all I've done too, Tim. Yeah. I've never run a marathon. I've only done half, so I, I'm, I'm with you. Yeah, <laughs> I don't. I can't imagine running that one back. Is how I look at the half marathon when I finish it. So, yeah, I, I would. I would think at 11 and 0 and number three and cementing your spot. You know that really an ideal opponent too, if you're Notre Dame, and this is the, the, your number one rival. Uh, you're familiar with all the players. You're familiar with all the names. You've gone against them forever. And uh, I would, in national TV, I think that if you're not motivated for this one, then Clemson or Alabama was going to light you up pretty bad anyway. So I, I would think you'd see the best out of Notre Dame this week. Yeah. Uh, one last thing before we let you go, uh, Tim O'Malley from uh, Irish Illustrated. Thanks again for joining us. But so obviously two teams in going different, <laughs> different directions right now. If you could give the USC fans out there some sort of hope, some light at the end of the tunnel, here's why I think this could potentially be a game in the fourth quarter. Like, what would you say? I, I honestly think we talked about this just on our podcast. You, you have to stick with the run to keep Notre Dame's pass rush off of you on third down because you look, USC has guys that can make plays downfield. So, you can't rely on 15 great plays downfield, but if you can just shorten the game a little, I like to say it's okay to punt. You know, it's okay to run the ball a couple times, throw a pass, and have to punt once in a while. If you can shorten this game a little bit and keep Notre Dame honest, because Northwestern, who cannot run the ball at all, really, really stayed with it and got over 100 yards against Notre Dame. And remember, they had an outside shot there in the fourth quarter to win yeah. the game, and they don't have half they don't have half the athletes that USC has. So. I think if you stick with it, no matter how bad it looks, it gives your guys a chance to make plays downfield. You only got to make about three or four big plays downfield, right? That could be 21 points. Yeah. So if you could, if you can really maintain that patience and, and not let Notre Dame's defense tee off, I, they can be vulnerable. It's not like they're the, you know, the Alabama defenses of, of the past where they're just absolutely murdered everybody. It, they just happen to be really, really good at one important thing, and that's rushing the passer. And, of course, USC is going to need to complete some passes in this game too. Tim O'Malley does an amazing job. Irish Illustrated. Follow him on Twitter at Tim O'Malley ND. Tim, I hope you have a very wonderful Thanksgiving. Thanks so much for coming on and uh, safe travels when you come out here to the La La Land. Yeah, I'll see you out there. Here we have a uh, temporary press box. How's that looking? It's uh, yeah, it's like sort of. Let's see, it's like a box car, like a, a storage. You know, one of those. Uh, what am I? I'm blanking on it. Just like those things, like a prepper would put underground and a storage bunker right, kind of thing, right. like. One of those dealies. So there's a bunch of those stacked up. We're actually in a separate box. So like all the USC media is on one side. So we'll have to, you can come over to my box or I can come over to your box and 
and say hello. Or maybe I'll, I'll run into you guys in Manhattan Beach when you're down here. Yeah, that's the way to do it. We'll meet in Manhattan. It's probably better food, so we're good. <laughs> Sweet. All right, Tim, thanks again so much. All right, thanks, Ray. All right, thanks to Tim for coming on the show. Really appreciate that. Some some great insights there. And I want to thank our sponsor before we jump into the rest of the show, Trader Joe's. They've been awesome to us over the last year and a half or so. Uh, we've been working with them. Uh, definitely, if you're going to USC for the Notre Dame game, you want to do a little tailgating, make sure you stop by uh, the University Village, USC Village, because Trader Joe's is there. they got all the things you would need for a tailgate. My wife and I, Jana, have been going there frantically the last couple of days, getting everything ready for Thanksgiving. So uh, getting some some stuff together. We're not hosting this year. We're actually going to a, a friend's house, but um, my former writer, Dan Wykey's house, they, they got a place down in Long Beach, but we wanted to get some stuff for that. So we, we did a lot of shopping at Trader Joe's. Hopefully you check it out. Uh, I, everyone loves the USC branded Trader Joe's bags that, that we have. So uh, whenever we go there, it's always a good time. So make sure you go check it out. Uh, Trader Joe's has been great to us, and I'm sure you'll love them if you try it out. If you haven't, if you have, thank you for doing that. Uh, okay, so let me go to read some of these questions. There's a lot of coaching questions, stuff like that. Um, as far as, you know, we if you read our war room, so make sure you go to check out the site. If you're not part of uscfootball.com right now, if you're not a subscriber, you definitely should check it out. Um, some amazing information that we put up there every day, all kinds of stuff going up from all the practices, but a lot of like we did a, not an emergency war room, but a, a, a war room extra. And we'll keep doing that as long as there's coaching uncertainty going on at USC. Um, so we, we put one up on Tuesday. It was very well received and a lot of information in there kind of giving you, taking you behind the scenes into the sort of power vacuum power struggle in the USC athletic department and all the rumors and everything that's floating around. So we addressed a lot of that uh, in there and check it out. So we're not going to talk about coaching candidates and stuff uh, here on the podcast really until, um, you know, if there's a vacancy or not, there's not a vacancy right now. So we're not going to talk too much about any of that stuff, but we'll, I'll have, uh, there's a bunch of things you sent in. I'll have Dan Weber do a column uh, about those uh, sending those in and stuff. So I will, I will put those in a column for Dan and he can answer a lot of your questions uh, about that. Let me read a text message from Chris in Dallas. Did this team improve at all this season? We just lost to a two and eight team who was not bowl eligible and they stopped us from becoming bowl eligible. Well, you could still beat Notre Dame. Uh, we lack motivational purpose and drive. This team played the same every week. They played down to the level of the competition. Clay Hilton is not head coaching material. He is playing house. He saw his dad do it, and he's playing the part. He's failing the program. The talent on this team alone should be a 10-1, and one, but 5-6 and six screams under development. Do the players buy into this program, or are they just here for the ride? Is there even a program to buy into? Uh, they are all playing charades, and the phrase is mediocre football team. Pretty uh, harsh, but it's hard to argue with a lot of what you're saying there, Chris. I believe it 100% that this is a 10-1, and 9-2 talent team. Uh, five and six, yes, it screams that there's a, a major issue going on here, and I believe it's on the coaching side. And I don't know if Clay Elton's head coaching material or not. Uh, and we've seen coaches learn from early mistakes. I think Clay Elton made a lot of early mistakes, and I think Sam Darnold was sort of the, uh, you know, covered up a lot of the warts that were on uh, some of Clay Elton's practices. And I do feel... Uh, no pun intended about practices. I do feel they need to practice harder. I need they need to change things up during the week, 
And I think they need to hire a better coaching staff. So that's been a real issue. There's no one on this coaching staff that's like, that's someone that other people would covet right now. And, and USC has been doing that for a long time with their athletic directors. They're not hiring people that other people want uh, with their head coaches. They weren't hiring people that other people wanted. Um, I don't get it. Uh, you're USC. You should be able to do better. So if Clay Helton comes back next year and he's forced to make a lot of changes, that's going to be the biggest thing for me. Who does he bring in? Does he bring in, you know, more people that are the same caliber or is he bringing in people that are alphas? And it's harder. It's going to be harder to bring in alphas now if that happens because people will assume he's on the hot seat. I mean, because he is, but that's that makes it a little harder. It doesn't make it impossible. It's not like who would come. I don't buy any of that stuff, but it does make it more difficult. But USC hasn't tried to get those people when it was when, when it was easy to get them. Like, but you know, alpha coaches that would want to come to USC. Uh, so it's going to be a little bit harder. So we'll see uh, kind of what happens. But um, yeah, we don't know at this point. But I, all good points, Chris. Thanks for that. Uh, here's a voicemail question. Hey Ryan, this is uh, Tommy from Mesa. And I just had a quick question for anybody who wants to answer it. I ain't really going to even harp about the whole Clay Helm thing because I'm sure he's getting you're getting bombarded with those type of questions and comments. But do you think that there are like higher ups in the USC program right now that already know whether or not Clay Helton to be back next year or when he's going to get fired, but they just for obvious reasons, they don't say it yet. Cause I was just sitting and I was thinking about that. I'm, I'm sure the decision probably has already been made, but we won't know it yet. Just something I was wondering. Thank you. Fight on be Notre Dame. Hey, Tommy from Mesa. Thank you for the voicemail. And uh, yeah, so just sitting here doing the podcast, you look through Twitter and stuff and, and I, or I'll get an email. Hey, from a good source, He's definitely coming back. And then two minutes later, I'll get, hey, from a good source, he's definitely gone. And there's been a lot of that. And we we address uh, a lot of that in our uh, War Room Extra of what we feel is going on in general. Um, I don't, Tommy, necessarily believe. I, okay, I believe a decision has been made, but I don't believe that the decision that's been made is necessarily final. And... I know, you know, the direction that Lynn Swan, we talked about many times, he wants to keep Clay Helton right now. Um, but there's pressure from other areas and there's pressure from fans. And we mentioned this yesterday on the podcast. I mean, I was literally shocked. Uh, Keely told me, hey, they started a GoFundMe on the Peristyle uh, about, you know, basically trying to raise money to make awareness from the fans. It's essentially, it's like a grassroots movement from the quote unquote $100 donors, not the big donors. They were banding together, uh, created a GoFundMe, and within the first few hours, raised thousands of dollars. It's over, right as of now, I think the last time I checked, it was over $10,000. This, uh, this is nothing that comes from us. We're not uh, backing it or condoning it or whatever, but this is just a group of fans that are upset that the, they feel the administration doesn't listen to them. And they started a GoFundMe to raise, I think it was $2,000 to fly a plane with a banner over uh, campus 
and I don't think the Coliseum, I think campus for the tailgating for the Notre Dame game, they would say something to the effect of uh, fire Helton. I don't know what it's going to say. And then the other money, they wanted to raise another $20,000 for a full page ad in the LA Times exp- with a letter that would explain you know, their position and, and why they feel like they're not being heard and stuff like that. So it, it was this huge thread on the peristyle, uh, started from some fans, and it's grown. I think they have like over 170 people have donated to it, at least last I looked. Um, it's crazy that this is kind of going on. So, to, to, I mean, I guess long answer to your question, uh, Tommy. Yeah, I think the decision that, you know, they feel like it's been made, but I don't feel that the, you know, it's over because there is so much outrage. And if it's big donors, you know, going in and uh, saying, we're not going to give money. I, you know, there's a, th- there's all this weird stuff going on. But I feel like the big donors have some power here. Um, but, you know, who knows? Like a, a, a fan revolt. Uh, we saw that work at Tennessee when they were trying to hire Greg Schiano and the fans uh, just revolted and, and shut it down and ended up, you know, John Curry, the athletic director, ended up getting fired. Uh, I mean, he really looked bad in that. Um, and some people gave fans a lot of crap. But, man, that was they had protests on campus. They had. Uh, huge presence on social media. And it was, it was, I mean, it was pretty amazing. I mean, that's part of what makes this country great is like that you, you, you know, whatever, you know, political stuff that's going on, all that stuff. I mean, the people is where the power should be. And if there's enough people that are saying, Hey, this isn't right. Um, you know, in government, obviously it's supposed to be your representatives. If they're not representing your views, it's different when you're talking about a private school. Uh, Tennessee was a public school. But still, you're the the people that support the program, the ones that travel. You know, I can't tell you how many people say they're not going to renew their season tickets, and that's one way, obviously, to to protest or whatever. You're you're not happy with what you're seeing on the field, and that hurts the bottom line. And I think that forces someone to take action. But this is like taking another step. But a lot of the people that we talk to that would travel to like Austin or South Bend or wherever you're going, and just they feel from the people that have told us they feel like. If the administration doesn't care about winning, why should we? And this is a, an example of that. So long answer, Tommy. Sorry. Um, yeah, I think that there's uh, a lot of um, upset fans and there's a lot of upset donors. Will it make a difference? I don't know. I mean, I, who knows? Like, But I, I, I kind of feel like there was a decision's been made, but it's not necessarily... Uh, finalized. So, you know, we'll see what happens from here. All right. We got another uh, text question. This is Brian of Bakersfield. I've just finished watching the game. Now I'm wondering why I wasted the effort to DVR it and sit there after work. The only good uh, from this game is this should get us a new staff. Well, we just talked about that, Brian. Um, I was the one that was never a fan of this hire, though at the time he hadn't done enough to be the head coach for a school like USC. Thought at the time, sorry. Uh, The last three years, I've watched every game and been frustrated during the majority of these because of play calling, lack of physicality, and overall softness. The fact says it all. This fact says it all. Clay Hilton is 32 and 16 as a head coach, 12 and 13 without Darnold. He's actually uh, 6 and 10 without Darnold when he's the permanent uh, head coach, also. Uh, uh, Sure, he was the head coach during Sam's career, but it took a 1 and 3 start to make that change. And Sam covered up the staff's pathetic game plans 
and coaching abilities. I refuse to watch another game with Helton and his staff as our coach, uh, Brian in Bakersfield. Um, yeah, I mean, you're not alone, Brian. I've, I've seen, and a lot of the people that are doing that GoFundMe thing, they're part of that. They're saying, hey, is he, if he's a coach, I'm out. And that's something the administration has to acknowledge. I don't think they're acknowledging it. And I think that's probably why you see this. Um, it's going to be one of those things that it's too late. It's like they don't want to hear it. But next year, you're going to have a less than half full newly renovated Coliseum. That's going to be a problem, you know. And we've already heard from so many fans that are upset because of the renovations. They hate it. Their seats were moving. They've had friends that they sat with for 40 years, and that's going away. So you're already going to get some sort of decline. You needed that team to be good to like help mitigate that. And now it's not only the team isn't good, they're bad, and you're bringing back a coach that nobody wants anymore. So I, I don't know what's going to happen next year uh, within the Coliseum. It could be a real... Uh, I mean, just a real disaster. So that's why a lot of the fans and boosters are are speaking out. Um, but you're you're not alone, Brian. There's a lot of people that are saying if he's still in place, if this is the same staff, I'm not coming back. Now maybe these are idle threats. Maybe like you know what, I got to go to the football games. But we're seeing more and more of that on the message boards where people are really frustrated and they're saying, you know what, I'd rather do something else. I'm going to take. I'm going to go to my kid's soccer game or I'm what I'm going to go on a trip to Santa Barbara for the weekend and not watch these games where we've seen so much of that. And it's really, I think the biggest problem is there's outrage and you're seeing that with the GoFundMe people. They're saying, you know, they're outraged. We're going to do something about it. But the, when it's indifferent, when people are just over it and they could care, they could care less. Um, that's a real problem because they're walking away. There's so many other options in Los Angeles right now for, for everything, obviously, but for good sports, there's so many, you know, you could go watch LeBron freaking James now in Los Angeles. It's not just, he's coming to town three or four times a year. He's here all the time. You know, uh, you can see that uh, the Rams are the, you know, so fun. Uh, that game Monday night, amazing to see, you know, the Rose bowl half empty and just, sort of lifeless, especially on the USC fan side, as opposed to the Coliseum with the Chiefs and the Rams full and fun and exciting. Like that reminds you of like the Pete Carroll days. Do you want to get back to that? Um, do you feel like this is the staff that can get you back to that? A lot of the fans don't and they're, they're voicing their displeasure. So uh, I, I don't know. It's uh it's a really difficult problem right now uh, for USC and I'm not sure what they're going to do. I, I don't like going back to Thomas from Mesa. I'm not sure what they're going to do, Thomas. Uh, I don't know if they've made a decision, but there are a lot, a lot, a lot of upset fans uh, going on uh, you know, here at the program. Uh, thanks for that one. That was from Brian. Let's read one from Don. Which players do you believe have performed at a five-star level this season? How many times has USC delivered on an important down no answers are they afraid to admit their failings um okay don don wrote a lot of questions in too we'll we'll send some of yours to to dan weber so uh usc so which players i think a lot of the players have stepped up i think you know michael Pittman, tyler vons i think they've had some really good 
performances. I think you know, JT Daniels has had some good performances under the circumstances. I know a lot of people don't want to hear that. I think Jack Sears had a great performance against Arizona State. Uh, I thought Matt Fink played really well when when he had to come in. Um, I love the way Aka Cedric Ware has been playing. We've seen Vavai, Malapai do well. I don't think there's really been a lot of five-star performances on the offensive line. Um, I think we've seen a lot of great defensive performances most of the year. Iman Marshall has played really well. Porter Gustin, when he was healthy, uh, you know, we, we've seen Cameron Smith. We've seen Palier Naoteote play well. Freaking uh, Talanoa Hufunga, who was in there for a little while. Man, he was great. Uh, there's there's definitely been some really good individual performances, but it's never been about that for USC. It's been about more of the, uh, you know, this the overall scheme, the overall team performance. You're going to get five-star guys making great plays. Uh, that's kind of how USC lives and breathes every day. Uh, you know, the, you talked about the Sam Darnold stuff. Yeah, I mean, you had Sam Darnold making the, all these hero plays. Um, so, yeah, it's... It, to me, it's not really about a five-star not doing his job. I think they're doing their job. Um, as far as USC delivering on an important down, I mean, the UCLA game, they ran that fake punt on fourth and one. They've had some really bad uh, decisions on some of those. But for me, it's more about it's. there's not a lot of consistency on important downs. You'll get these spurts that are like uh, you're pulling a, a lever of at, at a, a casino in Las Vegas on a slot machine, and most of the time you pull that, pull it down and you hit the button or whatever, and it's nothing. And that's kind of what USC is on offense a lot of time. But then you hit that jock power every once in a while, and there's like this five-minute stretch of scoring two or three touchdowns, and then the rest of the game is sort of, you know, crap again. And that's that's a problem. That means you're not getting those five-star guys to play consistently throughout the game. So I think that's a real, a real problem, Don. All right, we'll do uh, one last more. Uh, one last question, uh, voicemail. Hey, Ryan, love the show. Uh, this is Ivan from Redondo Beach, the biggest US, USC fan in the South Bay. I got one thing to say, man. Can we please get rid of Helton already? I've been asking for this since last year. We need to get rid of Helton, and we need Jack Del Rio. Let's get it going. Fight on. Ivan, you're in you're in a little town here, Redondo Beach, where I'm recording the uh, studio. So I guess you're the biggest fan of the South Bay. I didn't know that, but I'm glad glad I do. Um, so you are probably in the minority. Uh, there, well, as far as getting a new coach, no, you're not in the minority. Um, Jack Del Rio does not fit my criteria that I give out all the time, and I'll give it to you again, just so you know. Someone with college coaching experience and a successful college head coach. Jack Riel does not have that. Also, someone that doesn't know the USC fight song. Jack Del Rio does know it. So he fits O of two of my criteria. And now that I'm saying it out loud, it's making me less uh, likely to endorse something like that. Do I, I think he could be fine. Like I, He might be good. You just don't know. But it's sort of this thing where you've done this. What other program in college would hire Jack Del Rio as their head coach. Like is Colorado going to interview him? Like that name doesn't come up. Why? Cause he's not really a great college coaching candidate. He was a decent head coach in the NFL, but what have you seen? That's going to make him be like a great college head coach. There's not other college programs that would interview him. Why would USC interview him? 
because he played at USC. So if that's the only reason, I mean, if that's one of the big reasons that USC would interview him is because he played at USC, I think you need to steer clear of that at this point. As great of a candidate as he could be, maybe he's the strong presence and and hires a great staff and all this, but you've gone to this well so many times. You got to back away. You got to be like, you know what? It might work, but why don't we go try this? Something we haven't done that everybody else does all the time, and USC never does, a proven college head coach. Well, if you did that, you wouldn't have got Pete Carroll. Yeah, but you wouldn't have got all these other guys too. So Pete Carroll, there was there was reasons to believe as a NFL head coach, people in the NFL thought he'd be better suited for college because of the rah-rah stuff, because there were really good reasons uh, for that. And that was, you know, that's pretty lucky. You can't just look at that one thing. That's an outlier with everybody else. Was, was Paul Hackett a proven college? No, they're getting guys from the NFL. They're getting guys that were on the staff. They're familiar faces, all that stuff. Go, just go do this. If you have an opening, which USC doesn't have right now, but your next time you get an opening, go get a proven college head coach. It's not that hard. Maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't, but you at least try to do something that makes sense. It's it's logical. It's common sense, people. And get this, the next time you have an opening at your one of the top athletic departments in the country, you go hire an athletic director who's done it already. Like I, I know it's crazy. You don't necessarily have to hire another former USC football player to be your athletic director. You could go get someone that's been an athletic director somewhere else and have him step up from whatever school it is in the power five or even group of five to USC. It makes sense. It's going to be an upgrade unless you're going, you know, to get that. What did Alabama do when they needed an athletic director? They hired Arizona's athletic director. Why didn't USC do that? There was interest there. This is what you do if you're a a five-star athletic department. USC hasn't been doing that. So that's why I'm saying, I love it, Ivan. You know, Jack Del Rio, maybe it's great. I'm not going to be saying that's who USC should hire because he doesn't meet my two criteria. I'm I'm taking this back to the basics if there's openings. Stop doing the familiar faces. Stop doing the Trojan family. Just go get someone who has the right resume for the job opening you're hiring for. That's what people do in the real world. They don't hire you know, engineers to be neurosurgeons because they think they might be a good neurosurgeon. They would go out and get neurosurgeons. Just do that, USC. If you do that, everything's going to be okay. Okay, for our final segment of the show today, we have Thomas Rupp uh, in studio here to talk about the history of this USC-Notre Dame rivalry. His his book is really cool. You got to check it out. Rockney and Jones, Notre Dame-USC, and the Greatest Rivalry of the Roaring Twenties. So if you want to check that out, you can get it on Amazon, but there's also Rockney and Jones, the book, all spelled out. And uh, he's on Facebook, Thomas Rupp, the author, R-U-P-P. Or you can follow him on Twitter at T-Rupp, R-U-P-P, author. Thomas is in studio with us. What's up, Tom? How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Um, This is a perfect time. We actually, I think, emailed about doing this before. And I was like, well, we got to do it during USC Notre Dame week. Now, I didn't quite expect USC to be in the kind of position that they're in. 
Uh, there's not as much focus on the game as maybe uh, there normally would be, but obviously there's still so much history there. And we were just talking off air. This, the parallels from most of your book happened in the 20s and stuff to what we're seeing today, there's a lot of parallels there. That's true. And um, the period right after my book, which basically ends after the 1931 season, uh, Notre Dame suffered a real decline and they wound up uh, relieving the coach that they had, uh, Hartley Anderson. Um, so both teams have had their ups and downs. Notre Dame's been down recently, but now in the last couple of years, they're back up again. SC's kind of struggling this year, but uh, the, the, uh, the rivalry continues uh, through thick and thin. Yeah, it does. And it's uh, obviously an important rivalry to the history of college football. And that's what's real. I'm, I, I love history. I especially love uh, American history because, like, it's, you know, it's relatively recent, but just even like 100 years ago, how different things were. But when you're reading the book and you're like, oh, and, and players are coming back from World War One, or oh, prohibition's going on, like the stuff that's going on in the United States, it's kind of interesting how it helps shape like college football. Yeah, that's true. One of the big things I, I try to stress, and it's you know not original with me. I'm not a historian by profession or anything, but World War One kind of divided what had come before into a more uh, modern era. The, um, the the era of in Europe with all the kings and queens. A lot of those empires fell as a result of the World War One. Uh, Russia, of course, everyone kind of you know knows about that, the communist revolution and so forth. Um, but technology also started to come into play, and in our world, you know, Twitter and and high definition TV and these different kind of technologies we've seen coming in our lives in the last few years, changing how we live from day to day. The same thing was going on then. And a lot of the political issues were the same. How are these changes going to affect America, and and how are we going to move forward from there? Yeah, that's uh, great, and it's definitely a good read. And if you like USC football history, this is great because it ties in you know, two major programs. And it's funny, USC right now um, is in a, you know, potential transition period. There's people that would like to see the, you know, the a change at the, at the head coaching spot. We haven't seen USC really go out and, and hire a great college coach before. Maybe the last time was, you know, the subject of this book, you know, like, uh, with Ronald Jones, I mean, uh, Ronald Jones. Oh my God. Well, that's, <laughs> that's a Freudian slip. Different one. Howard Jones. The, the, you know, the practice field is named after him, but he was an established college head coach when USC went and got him. It might be the last time they've done that. Yeah. If you look at um, the history of USC, they've only kind of gone outside the program a few times, or at least someone who had a relationship with the program. The first basically was Howard Jones. Um, the second time was Larry Smith. And the third time was Pete Carroll. Uh, two out of those three have worked out pretty well. Yeah, and if if Coach Helton at whatever point if he does, his tenure does not survive, he shouldn't feel too bad because uh, so called gloomy Gus Henderson that Howard Jones replaced is still the winningest coach of all time <laughs> in USC football history, and he got basically fired yeah. to bring in Howard Jones. <laughs> gloomy Gus, yeah. There's some really interesting stories. It's funny. I got to read a lot of. History recently, Dan or Dan Weber re released a book too, and it was kind of like, oh, you get some of this stuff. So this obviously goes into a lot more detail about this really specific uh, golden, you know, age of of USC football. But the stuff before that, um, you know, getting into you know how Newt Rockney came into uh, coaching and how Howard Jones came into it, it was funny to see Howard Jones like playing at Yale and then 
coaching like the very next year and like being the successful coach, it was weird how like different and, and coaches weren't like full time employees or anything back then. It was really different. It really was. And uh, Rockney was really the person who established the whole modern coaching uh, uh system, personality, position. So if you talk about Nick Saban or Urban Meyer, really Rockney was the first guy because, as you say, uh, prior to that, it was kind of a gentleman's game, uh, very Ivy League. They were all volunteers. They usually served for one year. Uh, it wasn't until after the cr- big crowd started coming around and the money started coming in yeah. the gates that things really changed. Yeah, the uh, and it's funny. It was almost like tennis rules where like the coach could like – coach you up before the game, but they weren't really coaching during the game. Is there something like that? That's right. Yeah. Um, two things that were that a football fan today who would, who would go back in time and sit in one of these stadiums would not recognize a lot of what's going on. Of course they played both offense and defense that lasted for quite a while, but uh, the coach could not call plays or communicate with his players out on the field. And if you send in a, a substitute, he couldn't speak in the huddle for one play. So I'm sure they must have had some wink and a nod to say, you know, the coach wants us to run the 28, you know, blast play or something. But by the rules, it was a lot more, like you say, like tennis, where um, the coach, it was a pre and post game activity. It wasn't during the game. Yeah, that's really interesting how you couldn't uh, do that. What about halftime? Was there... You could like talk at halftime, or oh yeah, yeah. And I I read that uh, in my research that Howard Jones a lot of time liked to keep his players on the field rather than going back into the locker room. But yeah, that that was their their time to influence the game was before the game. Uh, you know, breaks at the quarters, the halftime, um, even substitutions were limited because if you pulled a player out, let's say in the first quarter, he couldn't come back in. So. Um, you oh, really? Re- yeah, so that that really played a, a role in, in the 31 game. Uh, um, that stuff's all obviously changed, and games become a lot more specialized. Offense linemen, defensive linemen, you know, they have different requirements. But in those days, uh, people were more generalists because of the way the rules were structured. Talking with uh, Thomas Rupp. He's the author of Rockney and Jones, Notre Dame, USC, and the Greatest Rivalry in, of the Roaring Twenties. Um so when when most of this book is taking place, the rules are a lot closer, I guess, to what we were now. Like if you look, you know, in the eighteen late eighteen hundreds and, and early nineteen hundreds, where like a touchdown was worth like five, but by the time you're here, it's like touchdown field goal. It's like similar like scoring rules, at least to what we see now. Correct. The um, the early uh, part of the twentieth century around nineteen oh five was when the forward pass was legalized in okay. football, and that that period before that was when the game was more like rugby. If you look at the history, it really came out of, of rugby. Uh, interesting, the Canadian football didn't uh, legalize the forward pass till the 1920s. Oh, wow. So it was it was a more rugby-like game for a longer period of time. And I think their scoring system didn't change until after World War II because there was so much television now with Amer- uh, Americans watching Canadian football, especially probably in the northern areas, like, what's this, you know, five points for a touchdown or whatever it was. <laughs> So that took they took a little longer to, to change that. And there were more like drop kicks, right, for for field goals and stuff, which I think it's still legal to do now, right? Or right. You know, Doug Flutie did it yeah. a few years ago for an extra <laughs> point. Yeah, that they, they had, you know, um uh George Gitt for Notre Dame was kicking like sixty yard drop kick field goals. Now the thing is that and I'd have to go back and check my notes to see what year it was, but the football was actually a a bigger ball 
earlier on. Okay. And then as passing became more um, an issue that you know, became legalized, the ball became a little thinner, so it was harder to drop kick. Gotcha. So but more it, aerodynamic to throw. Yeah, yeah, it was so-called watermelon football. that made it, it was more like a rugby ball that was easier to kick. Okay. And then these were like leather helmets full on. Right. And, yeah. and, and, and there were uh, some people who didn't wear helmets at all, as we as I talk about in the book. Uh, um, Duke uh, Slater for Iowa, he he was a unusual because he was an African American player and prominent for a big university at Iowa. He came out of the high school uh, uh, system in Chicago, and he, he was a poor family. He had money for either shoes or a helmet, so he, he bought shoes and didn't play with a helmet. <laughs> yeah, I think there's one picture in there where you point out like, oh, he's. He's under the pile without the without the helmet on right. and stuff. Um, so you mentioned like the forward pass. Um, there's a lot of mythology around. So when you know Howard Jones seems to be more, he came from a more like prominent background and everything, and 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 Newt Rockley was more of an immigrant, but definitely a bigger personality. But there's there was always much more like fanfare around Rockley than there was Jones, and people saying like, oh, he invented the the forward pass, which I've isn't true, correct? That's true. The, the The pass had already been legalized, but um, if you imagine the run-pass option offenses that are so popular today, uh, I, I I can't even tell you the first time I heard that term, but whoever was introducing it first, it was not a prominently widespread adopted offense. A few years later, whatever team you might want to consider really you know, popularize it, whether it's, you know, uh, the, the teams up in Oregon or, or, or wherever they might be from, that's when you say, okay, that's really a, a, an established weapon. And that's what uh, Rockney did in 1913 as a player against Army. They used the forward pass instead of just sparingly, they used it as a real part of the offense and shocked on upset Army. And that kind of put them on the map. And that's where that mythology comes from. Okay. So there, I mean, both of these coaches were innovators. Um, and it was funny because they just basically start. I mean, they must have just been good at because they. It's not like they went to some coaching clinics. They were just came right out of their playing days. Uh, but like a guy like Howard Jones, I think like the the trap like trap runs and things like they were. Each coach seemed to develop like new concepts that would help them win games. That's true. Um, uh, one of the things I find really interesting about the two guys in the two schools it's a little bit of a yin and yang situation where if you if you imagine that symbol from Eastern cultures that there's a little circle inside the two main shapes. And that's indicative of a little bit of the opposite is in that other, that's your side or what have you. So you have a very conservative school, especially in those days of um, Notre Dame with, you know, a male only school, whereas USC's first valedictorian was a female from day one. Uh, Co-ed students, Hollywood out here on the West coast, kind of the more, uh, razzle dazzle imagery, but Howard Jones was really the conservative guy yeah. from the Ivy League, and Rockney was more of the fast talking salesman, immigrant, uh, new American type. So um, Howard Jones tended to be more conservative, but as you mentioned, he did uh, develop the trap play, which he used to good effect uh, to beat uh, Notre Dame when he was coaching at Iowa. But um, but both were were innovative coaches, and I had a one of. Um, Howard Jones, former players, told me that Jones was probably the better defensive coach compared to Rockney. Okay, yeah, they, they he was known as the head man, right? Right, the he head was man a- was his nickname. He was he was kind of a stern looking guy. Didn't talk much. Uh, I've I've actually met his daughter before she passed away and found out some interesting things about Howard Jones. And I think some of that comes from his personal life that was kind of in turmoil. He had difficulties, and I think he 
caused an, a normally conservative person to become even more introverted. And really, the football field was the only place where he felt uh, real comfortable. Yeah. Um, one of the interesting stories, because there's another mythology thing with Notre Dame, is George Gipp, you know, win one for the Gipper. And, and I'll, I think you mentioned in the book, too, uh, what was the movie, The All-American? Uh, Knute Rockney All-American. Yeah, Knute Rock and, uh, and like Howard Jones is in it, but he wasn't even mentioned. And it was really, they come back from losing, when you mentioned the Iowa game, mm -hmm. uh, the first time they're head-to-head -head and you know Notre Dame being a big favorite or whatever. They don't even mention, that like, all the mythology goes to the Newt Rockney side. And, and George Gippy in this, I mean, if it was like eligibility rules, like he would be completely ineligible, like not going to class, just partying all the time. Uh, and it, it's like a crazy story that he they would go around, you know, do whatever they could just to get this, you know, to get him eligible. Yeah, and that's an example of Rockney as kind of the the salesman kind of guy. Is um, you know, it's pretty well known. There's been biographies of, of George Gipp that that I drew on that he was almost what you know what they would call a ringer. I mean, he really didn't go to class. He lived in a hotel. He hustled pool to make money and gambled. Uh, one of the stories is he, the way, reason he got sick and died was he basically got so drunk he passed out in the snow and laid out there overnight. When Ronald Reagan played him in Canute Rockney All-American, of course, he was, he was sort of a choir boy. But um, yeah, today he'd definitely be on the ESPN uh, highlight when the <laughs> You know the sanctions came down. Yeah, nice. and you said Canute Rockney too, because that's his. Technic was it Danish? Like is that uh, um, Nor Norwegian. Norwegian? Okay. So. Yeah, technically it should be pronounced Canute. Everyone's dropped the K. You know, we know the name uh, Newt Ginrich from um, uh, politics, but that's spelled differently. And in in in, um, in, uh, in Norway, and and even if you watch the movie Canute uh, Rockney All American, they'll they'll pronounce the K. Oh, they will. Okay, yeah. So yeah. that was more. I guess it kind of was changed. It was no, Americanized no, or something. Yeah, everybody these days say says uh, new, but I've I've kind of forced myself to say Canute because I don't want somebody calling out me out and say you don't know what you're talking about <laughs> if you can't even pronounce the name right. You you wrote this book. You don't even yeah. know what you're meaning. Like, oh yeah. no, he. You know, um, the you mentioned uh, Duke, like one of the the you know, one of the early African American players. He ended up going on to be like a judge or whatever. Right. But um, there were some other. I mean. As far as Howard Jones goes, I guess Newton Rockney never Newton Rockney never had a African American no, player. No, he did. Howard Jones did. I think it was the first All American at USC uh, was was a right. African American right. player too. It was Bryce Taylor, and he was interesting too because he he only had one hand. He was born basically with you know what we call a, a birth defect today, if that's not too politically incorrect. Um, he uh, was not a consensus All American, but yeah, he was he was named an All American. He was a very good lineman at the time. Uh, he had. Uh, 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 Duke Slater uh, earlier before at Iowa. And they, there was another player afterwards who was on the USC roster. He was very critical of of Howard Jones, you know, being racist and wouldn't send him on the traveling team. Um, I know that for many, many years, USC had that reputation. And that's why one of the reasons why, and there goes my phone ringing. <laughs> that's uh, okay. Uh, one of the reasons why Jackie Robinson went to UCLA and um, help me, Ryan, the 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 running back in the fifties. I'm not getting his name to play at USC. That what uh, he went to it's Texas. Te yeah, right? the Texas game was kind of um, blanking on his name. I know. Who yeah. You're well, anyway, yeah. one of the he reasons, helped like integrate the Texas yeah, well, yeah, program. one of the yeah, well, one of the reasons he went to USC is he wanted to kind of counter that and and go there anyway, but. Um, I I didn't talk too much about this other player because well I hope to write a, a full biography of Howard Jones in the future but 
you know, it's 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 very difficult to judge people of that time uh, by today's standards. Sure. I have no doubt that Howard Jones um, was w- would not be an enlightened liberal, uh, racially tolerant person a- as we might hope to be today. I know that uh, there are stories of uh, Rockney telling very crude uh, jokes about black players and stuff, but then he would. There's an incident in the book where he goes out of his way to congratulate the uh, Indiana State champion high school player who was their leading uh, leading star was was a, a young black kid. So um, I do know that you know he had a couple of really good players that he played and became you know all Americans. Um, but that question of exactly sort of the racial uh, makeup at the time or the racial attitudes is still a little bit of an open question. Yeah, it, it's really hard to put today's standards on what's going on there. But you can, mm-hmm. you know, it's weird that the one player had, you know, African-American players, another one did. But there's still still some stigma about Howard Jones even having that. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, you know, like I said, if you if you, there are books out there, they'll basically say that, like I said, you know, um, there are other coaches, I'm not going to name any more names uh, because I just don't think it's fair, but who have even today a reputation of being really racist and saying racist things. I, I don't have any specific information that that's the case with Howard Jones, like I said, except for this one uh, player. And was there um, pressure from people on campus? You know, I don't know. I mean, um, like I said, I, since, since I didn't really know, I just tried to lay out the facts and, and, and that I had and leave, leave it at there leave it at that. But, um, there were at least, and even if you look at USC's, I think website, there's an African-American player from like the 1800s or something. So I think there's always been a little more racial tolerance than in other parts of the country, but not to saying it's been perfect in Southern California. Yeah, no. And you know, it might've just been an Indiana thing for new, I mean, like if he coached somewhere else, you know, there's, you know, geography probably had a lot to do with it. When he had a lot of Jewish players and he would kind of make, uh, I forget what they call it, but it's like a stereotype that's positive about, you know, these brainy Jewish players, right? It's still kind of a racial stereotype. But um, so, and he had Italian players, uh, of course, being a convert to to Catholicism, which also is another irony that he was a Lutheran representing the Catholic uh, (laughs) school, but he eventually converted. Um, so that that's pretty natural, but um, there weren't a lot of of people of color in Indiana at the time, anyway. Yeah. Um, and that's you know, there's a lot about the Ku Klux Klan. One of their big targets in the 1920s were Catholics and and people from other countries that were coming in. Again, kind of look comparing that to today, but um, with that emphasis that they had, that appealed to people in Indiana because if you were running around like somebody from the deep South and we have to get rid of this, you know, dark menace or something that wasn't going to sell because there weren't a lot of people of African ancestry in Indiana anyway. Oh, so it was mostly going after the Catholics. And yeah. Stuff, Catholics yeah. and foreigners, you know, and, and I mean, some of that's the reason why there was that some subway alumni, you know, base, right. For, for Notre Dame. Right. Yeah. I mean, Catholics, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think, and I write in the book, I think it's hard to, if 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 Rockney had wind up coaching at at Kansas or I don't know uh, New York University or, or any other school, I don't know if he ever will would have been the figure that he is today. Because I think it's really difficult to separate all the hopes and aspirations that Catholics around the country put on Notre Dame. Yeah. So yeah, when they went to the New York City, and that's where really the term Subway alumni comes from. You have all these mainly Irish and and maybe some German and uh, immigrants that would go to these games, and they, they were never going to ever take a class at any college, but it was go, go Notre Dame because it was the Catholic, the big Catholic school. Interesting. The, uh, okay. So the two, I mean, obviously we're talking about, uh, Knut Rockney and Howard Jones. Uh, that's 
hard for me to say that, but I will try. <laughs> um, and you mentioned that when when Howard Jones was at Iowa, he had already like I believe won a national championship at Yale, right? Or undefeated season mm-hmm. at Yale. And an underdog, they host Notre Dame, and it's like this huge game. And spoiler alert, you know, Iowa wins, and um, you know it's a huge. He ends up having an undefeated season there too. Uh, how did that game? Like, how did those guys meet, and how did that game kind of happen to start this uh, rivalry off? Well, um, the the fact is that uh, Rockney really wanted to join the the Big Ten or what's called the Western Conference in those days. It's it's funny to think of the Midwest being the right. West, but it, that's the yeah, way Michigan's they like at. the champions of the West. It's yeah, like, right. Because yeah. you know there wasn't a heck of a lot out here uh, on the West Coast back in those days. Uh, you got to remember, you know, Arizona wasn't a state until like 1912 or something. Um, but uh, so he he had been trying to schedule the uh, the Big Ten teams, and he hadn't had a lot of success. And uh, Jones uh, and uh, Rockney ran into each other at a Big Ten meeting, and he eventually was able to just schedule this one game. Um, I don't have too much detail, on, uh, you know, beyond that, but um, it was obvious that. You know, kind of like today, uh, good teams want to play good teams, maybe not every week. Uh, that's one thing that always gets me about USC schedule these days, having to play Stanford the second week of the season. Yeah. In the old days, I unheard of, you know. Right. You played all the cupcakes to work out the kinks first. But, um, and uh, yeah, they were riding an undefeated streak. And it really, there was a good chance they would have been invited to the Rose Bowl had they won that game against Iowa. But uh, uh, I think if memory serves me that, uh, uh, Jones only used like twelve players in the total in that game. Yeah, that's crazy. That's <laughs> insane. Yeah, they would, and he would call it like the Jones's eleven or Rockney's right. eleven, and he only used twelve. It's kind of like right. what USC did against Stanford a few with Orgeron, just on defense though. Right. Well, like I said, you know, they played both ways, so your you know your fullback might be a linebacker or whatever. Of course, you know a lot of these positions were were different than they are today. I don't even know if the term middle linebacker was even used in right. those days. There's a lot of ends and right. tackle. You know, yeah. like, what was that one do? Yeah. Um, yeah, like yeah, there's not like all oh, the quarterback or whatever. I guess and, there still was, but and yeah. I think the playbook was quite a bit smaller. And I remember. Um, one of Howard Jones' players telling me that the, they didn't call signals. They just it timed everything out and snapped the ball, and off they went. In their head, they were like, you know, 1,001, 1,002, shift, 1,003, there's the ball, and off you went. Wow, that's kind of interesting. They yeah. just, uh... Well, even even the huddle, um, the huddle was something that was developed kind of later on as you started calling signals and stuff. It's just you, do, you don't think about that sort of thing, but when you just start playing sports in their earliest, earliest days, there's no formal rules and and – you know, everything we take for granted today, a lot of it, you know, they didn't have back in those days. Yeah. Uh, so they start the rivalry. Jones wants to play him again. How does Jones end up coming to USC and how's Rockney involved in that too? Um, Howard Jones, as I said earlier, had had some kind of turmoil in his personal life. His, his first wife at Iowa left him and he decided to leave. And it was just a couple of years, just a few years after, um, Winning, uh, winning that game against Notre Dame and really kind of being at the the peak of his profession, and he left and went to what was called Trinity College, which later became Duke. Um, the guy I don't know who the gentleman's name whose name was Duke, but gave a bunch of money, and so they named the school after him. But he's coached one season at Duke, and that would be like uh, let's see, that would be like um, uh, Urban Meyer going from Ohio State to I don't know. Um, 
Indiana or Kentucky or yeah. or Western Michigan or whatever, right? <laughs> I mean, they have very sparse facilities. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Elmer Henderson, Elmer Gloomy Gus Henderson was winning 80% of his games at SC, but he had alienated the the Bay Area teams, Stanford and Cal. Who were uh, powers at the time. Right, yeah, yeah. They, were the, they were the, in fact, USC wasn't even part of the conference initially. They joined later. Um, and also he had difficulty beating those teams, especially Cal. And so the alumni uh, got restless, which is got to have a familiar ring There's to it. There's pa- some parallels <laughs> to that. <laughs> and they started looking around for a new coach. And, they, and Rockney had had a uh, summer coaching clinic at USC, and both sides had hit it off really well. And they tried to bring Rockney out as coach, and he told them that they, he was going to take the job, but he used that a lot of times as leverage at Notre Dame to um, you know, get a contracts extensions. Yeah. He was uh, good at that stuff. Yeah, and which again, that has a familiar <laughs> ring to it from today. But um, you know, the story's been handed down that he recommended uh, Howard Jones. I actually didn't um, find that specifically uh, in the newspapers at the time. Interestingly, he uh, recommended Bill Spaulding, who wound up being the coach at UCLA. Uh, but in any event. Um, Howard Jones eventually uh, was brought out here. At that time, he was a single dad, which was really unusual in those days, especially for like a you know prominent, upstanding uh, citizen. Came out here in 1925, and USC was trying to emulate, which a lot of schools were, the Notre Dame f- of formula of football success leading to more money coming in and more um, applicants to the school and so forth. And they brought Jones out. Uh, he... He did well, but USC was um, wanted a, a marquee game on the uh, schedule. And th- when things fell through with Rockney, sort of this fallback position is, well, maybe we can get a game. And, of course, there's a famous story that everybody knows about that uh, there's a professor, um, history professor from Indiana that, that in her book about 10 years ago really poo-pooed the story. But I think I show pretty well that – more likely than not, it actually did happen, and that is that uh, Howard Jones' wife and, um, excuse me, um, Gwen Wilson's wife, who was the, they call it a graduate manager. He was kind of the equivalent of the athletic director today. Again, it's something that we don't have today. Um, and uh, Rockney's wife kind of really uh, leaned on Rockney to, to sign the contract. In 1926, they played the first game in the Coliseum. Yeah, that's, uh, I mean, it's interesting because there there was always that, like the wives kind of set this up, come out shopping or whatever. And then it was, like you said, like there was, it was poo-pooed or you weren't really sure. I mean, it's hard to tell nowadays, but you feel it's more on that. It probably did happen. Well, what I found was a, um, an article in the Daily Trojan that Gwen Wilson had gone back to the Big Ten meeting. And I was able to piece together the timeline. It was basically over the Thanksgiving uh, weekend, and um, Notre Dame was playing uh, Nebraska in Nebraska. And there had been a lot of bad feelings because they were um, uh, having sort of a lot of anti-Catholic. Imagine the Stanford band, right, and some of their politically correct, (laughs) incorrect antics. And that's kind of what was going on there with a little harder edge and the the clergy basically at Notre Dame says, we're not going to go out there anymore. So all of a sudden they had an opening on their schedule that wasn't there anymore. Um, when Wilson was, the story of course goes that he was trying to convince Rockney to come out. Rockney and his wife had a good time out here in Southern California for this clinic I mentioned. Uh, Rockney didn't want to do it. And eventually the two wives talked. Next thing you know, uh, Rockney changed his mind. And the idea was that Rockney's wife had basically said, Hey, you know, you should sign this contract. This is a great 
you know, place to go, warm weather in the winter when we're, you know, freezing back in Indiana. Um, this, this professor in, in a book called uh, Shake Down the Thunder talks about a letter that Rockney had written to a guy, a uh, coach up in the Pacific Northwest, that, that uh, the USC had made this great offer. And so it was all about, about money. And he speculated it was a $100,000 guarantee. Well, I, was, I actually found the, the um, telegram that was sent that was about a $35,000 uh, guarantee that was just within a few hundred dollars of what they had actually uh, taken uh, as a result of the Nebraska game. So it, it really couldn't have been just money thrown at it. And the fact that I can show that he was actually there and I actually got train schedules from the railroad that shows wow. that he would have, that the time that he said that he left, and there's been all sorts of versions of the story where I can see where the, where the name of the train he took, because all those trains were named in those days, got messed up. But I can pretty well show that circumstantial evidence weighs pretty heavily that that's probably a true story because otherwise the uh, Gwen Wilson, whose name's on buildings at USC and was instrumental in founding Santa Anita park. And he worked on the 1932 Olympics. He's basically making a story up that I think is hard to, to imagine that someone would do that. Yeah. No, that's, that's cool. It's a, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating story and it's, you know, part of, it's just kind of the part of the lore of how this is such a cool and unique rivalry where you don't there's nothing else like this i mean there's no geography ge- geographical reason that these two teams should be rivals right and it's not like army and navy that were two branches of the service yeah. or you know oregon oregon state or whatever school you want to pick uh texas and oklahoma or, you know um michigan and ohio state the states had a rivalry going back from before they were actually states before there there were the colleges and everything yeah usc in in notre dame it's like it's like Notre Dame and I don't know what uh, LSU. They shouldn't yeah. really be rivals, but they could be <laughs> if something like this were to happen. And I and I really don't think it can happen anymore today. If you look at the Miami uh, Notre Dame rivalry that was pretty big in the eighties, but it's not a permanent thing. Yeah. It was really the nineteen twenties and the era at the time that allowed this this rivalry to starting to take hold. One thing I forgot to mention um, when you you're talking about some of the games like in the early twenties and stuff and you'd say a player was like 29 years old and stuff like, was that, was that common that were there like a lot of older college football players? Well, we, we've seen that some at USC. Remember there was a punter they had maybe 10 or 20 years ago that was like 28 or 29, yeah, even okay. in the army and stuff. It was more common than today. The, the typical route we have today of 18 years old, you go to college four years, took me more than four. Um, <laughs> and then graduating at 22, it was not as common in those days. Okay. For sure. And I didn't know if some of it was the World War, what, like guys coming back from the war. Well, to- I, I definitely think that's part of it. But you got to remember, before World War I, a lot of people didn't even go to college. Yeah. It wasn't a thing, right, as, as the slang is today. It's a thing. Um, that after the war, that's the other th- reason that the USA rivalry got so big, and other rivalries as well in football, is because this whole youth culture that we're in today um, kind of started then. Everybody wanted to be like the varsity uh, drag was a popular song. It was all kind of college this and fraternity. And everybody wanted to feel like, you know, they were the cat's meow as the slang of the day and all that. Um, that hadn't take, that hadn't been that way before. And I think part of it was the thought World War One had been so horrific that people said you have to enjoy your life while you have it because you could be taken away from you at any time. You know? Yeah. And uh, then plus there was this huge uh, influenza epidemic, which we didn't oh, yeah. talk about, 
um, which killed more people than around the world than the war actually did. Wow. So you have all this sort of misery and these people coming back and they're disfigured and, you know, their arms are blown off and everything. And everybody, you know, got to be like, let's just have a good time. Yeah. And college, what was a better time than college than fraternity row and... And having, having and there, there was one game you described where they weren't allowed, the crowds weren't allowed. Like you couldn't allow anyone. No one was allowed in the stands. Were like armed guards around. Yeah, that was in Iowa when the uh, um, the flu was uh, at its peak. And if you look at books about, or even just go on the internet and do a, a web search, you see also pictures of like boxing matches and stuff, and everybody's wearing a surgical mask. Oh wow! You know because everyone, nobody really knew how it spread, and they they were afraid of of getting sick and yeah in this one game the only spectators were like military cadets or whatever that, or people from the local base i forget exactly now but it's in the book where they they fell in to watch the game and that was it wow um the you mentioned okay 1926 the coliseum about the same time which is pretty strange like when you look back at it like at los angeles had like a hundred thousand people and they build the coliseum and then up the road, they build the Rose Bowl, which at the t- like it just it's baffling that you would build a stadium like basically the size of your city, well, two now, of them, and and how that played a role in this too. By that time, I think LA was a little bigger than that, but okay, yeah. but I th- I think it hit a million somewhere around that that period. But what there was is there's across the country there was a huge boom of stadium building within a two or three year period. They built the Coliseum, the Rose Bowl, Soldier Field in Chicago. The Yale Bowl had already been around. An interesting story is the reason why American football fields are 100 yards long and Canadian football fields are 110 yards long is because both were 110 yards long. If you look at the USC um, uh, record book, the longest play from scrimmage, I think, is like 106 yards or something like that. Uh, Okay. And what happened was when they added end zones, the Yale Bowl had already been built and they couldn't make the field bigger, so they made the field smaller, (laughs) whereas the Canadians didn't do that. And, of course, the Canadian field is wider and they have 12 guys on his side and all that. But uh, in any event, yeah, there was this, it was just kind of this big um, athletic boom. You know, the, like I said, the, the youth culture was big. People started seeing all the money that could be made by having, you know, 75,000 people come into the stands. The World Series, would, the World Series, I think, started, I believe, as we know it, in like 1903. It hadn't been along, around that long. Again, as people, you know, I've been around a little longer than you have. Other people who might be listening might be still in their 20s. It's, it's just really hard to imagine things that we take for granted that didn't exist back in those days. And the idea of these massive crowds and big games and stuff, I mean, you know, a thousand people might be a big game. There's, there's pictures of stadiums where the Model T's and stuff are basically on the sidelines because people just drove up and got out and watched the game. <laughs> and that was a little earlier on. but Yeah. No, that's pretty funny. And then I think... Part of the appeal for for Notre Dame to play at Iowa because they had a you know I think it was like thirty thousand like it was like a decent size stadium or something you could play right in. it had been expanded and that was that was the one thing I also talk about is you know in nineteen twenty they were playing before maybe five crowds of like five thousand by nineteen thirty they were playing one hundred and twenty thousand people you know in Soldier, like Soldier Field, Field right? you know yeah. when SC and Notre Dame played so in other schools the same way they had these gigantic crowds it's just it's just this huge growth of, of sports and football in particular. Yeah, it's. Uh, but yeah, you know, how much do you think that played into it that USC and Notre Dame, like maybe if they didn't play huge crowds at the Coliseum, one hundred twenty thousand at, at Soldier Field, maybe it wouldn't have continued till this day. Well, and it probably wouldn't have been signed. The the deal wouldn't have been signed to begin with. That's one thing in this this book that talks about the money aspect. I think it's obvious that Notre Dame was not going to 
fill the Nebraska slot with some school that had a small stadium because there was there was no profit in doing that. Uh, SC had the Coliseum, which obvious um, obviously was a big stadium. Now, of course, it's only sat about eighty thousand at that time. It was it was expanded. Uh, a lot of people think the Coliseum opened in nineteen thirty two for the Olympics, but it opened in nineteen twenty three. Uh, but still, an eighty thousand seat stadium is what bigger than what the Coliseum is going to be yeah. <laughs> when the Next when year, the yeah. refurbishment's done. But yeah, I mean, definitely, if if they had not had that stadium to play in, then, then I don't think the series would have ever started at all. Interesting. Um, yeah. And then with the, I mean, what did it mean that both of these programs, while they were coaching, were winning? national championships and just it seemed like that cemented this as you know something that went back and forth it was like lakers celtics or something like it just became this this thing that was like as big as college football right i i think that um the the youth culture and the cult the cult of celebrity that we have today the kim kardashians and others that are kind of famous for being famous um again that kind of started then and while howard jones was not um the most charismatic uh individual you'd want to have but still it was on the west coast it was la you you'd when you went to the games in in chicago and the reason why they were in chicago is because notre dame didn't have their own stadium until 1930 you know, al capone would be in the um <laughs> in the stands uh the famous gangster the mayor of new york um on, on the west coast you'd have all these movie stars boris karloff would show up this is a little later on but boris karloff would show up to practice this uh so you know I don't want to throw out too many names that, that people won't remember from those days, but you had all the celebrity attached to it. Just like today when USC plays Texas, you've got Matthew McConaughey on the sidelines and Will Ferrell over yeah. here. The same thing was going on in the 1920s. So it was this recipe, this stew, I think, of of factors that came together at the right time um, that I think uh, to a certain degree, even though Army at the time was kind of the pinnacle of, of football, um, that eventually naturally was going to wane away because Army was just not going to be a competitive team after yeah. after World War II. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, and I remember seeing pictures of uh, like Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth, like with you know one wearing USC stuff, one wearing Notre Dame stuff at one of those luncheons or whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean that's just that celebrity factor was it was I mean it was just huge then too. Well, the other thing that hasn't changed is the 1927 game. There was a huge controversial call that probably should have been a safety for USC that was ruled a touchback, and the, and the rules in, on touchbacks were a lot different in those days. But even after viewing the film, the referee who made the call said he made a mistake. So it's the luck of the Irish, as far as the officials go, when you play back there, it goes all the way back to the first game that Notre, <laughs> Notre Dame hosted. So they, they didn't have an instant replay then, but you could see No, the they. but what's interesting is they rushed the film out from – Chicago to LA to be developed and then they showed it in the theater for like a week or two afterwards and turned it around the country because you had no t- TV right you you would go and get these newsreels and stuff and they showed the whole game film uh, at a movie theater they, and then did they start doing like radio broadcasts and stuff during this period yeah or? and they in the 1931 game they had uh, in, in LA they had uh, um, the game was in uh, South Bend but out here in LA they had speakers like on top of the the Broadway building, I think it was, and I and in, and in parks. And my mother was born in 1915. And when I was a kid, she used to tell me in L.A. that they would have speakers set up for the radio broadcast for the USC games, you know, speakers in the park. And I kind of didn't think too much about it until I found these news articles and go, wow, that's exactly what she told me when I was a kid. That's great. Uh, okay, so the book, 
It's Roxanne Jones, Notre Dame, USC, and the greatest rivalry of the Roaring Twenties. We're with Thomas uh, Rupp. I wanted to get. I don't, there's probably some other cool stories from there too, but I mean, there's lots of great stories in there. What's uh, your, kind of your background a little bit? Like, how did this project come to be, and like, what you know, where where do you come from at all? Why was this interesting for you? Well, I think to me, it's kind of an interesting story in itself because I'm I'm not a historian. I'm not really even a professional writer or anything. My background is in uh, kind of art and design, um, but I was just a fan. I've been a fan of USC football since I was a kid. Um, and being on um, USAFootball.com, when the rivalry week would come up, you'd hear these stories and kind of Notre Dame fans going back and forth with USC fans. I just started looking things up. And I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And I kept digging more and digging more and digging more. Um, it took me about 10 years altogether. And wow. there are a lot of newspaper archives now online where you can use search terms. And I was able to find these um, these detailed stories about like the one year when they had uh, uh, the restaurant had a special USC day where their sandwiches were named after the players and stuff. Um, you wouldn't be able to find that stuff in the past because you'd have to like fly all over the country and just dig through library archives, which you weren't going to do. Um, but it was just, it's just something I just, I just kept working on and uh, presented it to a couple of potential publishers, Kent state university press, you know, took it on and, and published it and, uh, I've just been really happy to get the story out there um, because I think it is very unique. And, you know, in, in L.A., if something happened 10 years ago, it's ancient history. You know, the, yeah. the Notre Dame side is a little naturally more inclined to kind of, you know, traditional history and that kind of stuff. But I found a lot of USC fans have been interested in it as well. Interesting. So so you started with us on USCfootball.com back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, <laughs> yeah, I um, like I said, I, I would just I, I remember. I kind of started going on there at the very end of, as they say, he shall not be named, yes. when the new coaching search. And it was like, Pete Carroll? Who's this Pete Carroll guy? Right. <laughs> you and know, I had no idea who this guy was, you know. Yeah, that was funny. My dad, I, we, I went to high school in New England, and my dad, you know, is a huge Patriots fan. We, we actually grew up in Western Pennsylvania. I love the Steelers. Mm -hmm. Lynn Swan was like an idol of mine growing up because they won four Super Bowls. We moved to New England. He started to like the Patriots. And I'm like, he went to Super Bowls in person. I don't know why he did. But anyway, he did. And I remember him telling me, like, I think Pete Carroll's going to work out. He's like the rah-rah guy. Didn't really work in the NFL. Mm. And obviously, that was he's not right about a lot of stuff, but he was right about that. <laughs> well, you mentioned a Super Bowl. I mean, I was very young. I was, what, about uh, 9 or 10 years old. But I kind of wish I had found a way to get to the first Super Bowl on the Coliseum because, you know, it wasn't even sold out. Yeah, yeah. And I'll never go to a Super Bowl. It wasn't like live TV either, right? Or was it, or was it taped? Maybe it was. I don't know. <sighs> You know, I think it, I think it might have been blacked out in LA. I can't remember, but they actually carried it on the two channels because CBS carried the NFL, NBC carried the AFL, so they both they carried both. the game. But they didn't even call it the Super Bowl in those days. But anyway, the point is, is the tickets were probably ten bucks or something. Yeah, and I could have actually had a chance of going to see it. But these days, I, you know, I probably never have a chance. That's interesting. Yeah. So you're uh, kind of like, so you weren't like a professional author or anything before. No, this, no, I've always been decent with writing. I, I discovered that I don't know nearly as much about the English language as I thought I did. <laughs> There's a lot of formal conventions uh, that English majors are probably familiar with. And of course, different publishers have different standards, uh, style guides, they call them. But that's what the editor's for. Um, uh, and and I, I, I didn't, even though the book is fully footnoted so people can see I'm not really you know making stuff up, 
I didn't want to write it as a typical history book. I wanted to write it as you know, what they call narrative nonfiction. Um, if you're familiar with like the Junction Boys, yeah, about the uh, Bear Bryant at Texas A&M, and there's the uh, same author I believe wrote a great book called uh, Monster of the Midway about Bronco Nagurski. And I just kind of I kind of try to channel their writing style and and, and you know sometimes there, people might say well there's too much detail, but I, I wanted to try to make it as if you were living the experiences they happen rather than kind of a dry dissertation of cultural influences and that sort of thing. Right. No, it's really, I mean, it's a really interesting read. So I definitely recommend uh, check it out on Amazon or Barnes and uh, Noble, just Barnes about anywhere. No- nice. Um, is there one, before I let you go, is there one like, I mean, something we maybe didn't cover, like a great story that you'd, you'd want to tease or what, I mean, or, or bring up? Well, I will say this is not specifically about the book. Like I said, I, I you know, I have done events with Notre Dame alumni groups and stuff. And I've said, you know, full disclosure, I'm a USC fan. Tried to be fair to both. Uh, one of the things, there's just so many interesting aspects of the rivalry throughout the whole rivalry. The number of Heisman Trophy winners, the national champion teams, the teams that have been denied national champions by losing. Hopefully that'll happen on Saturday. Um, <laughs> uh, and just, and just this sounds crazy, but if you just look at the rosters, I, mean, I think I mentioned in the book, USC has had a Mozart and uh, Notre Dame has had a Shakespeare. And there's just... All these great uh, names um, that that players have had over the years. It's just a very, very colorful rivalry. Yeah, it certainly is. And it's a colorful book. And uh, there's, if you like your pictures, there's some pictures in there. It, it really helps because when you're describing an era that you didn't live in, sometimes just seeing a, a snippet of it helps too, where you can kind of, at least for me as I'm reading, that I can kind of picture it a little bit. Uh, better, but it's uh, yeah, it's a really interesting read. I'll read it. I'll read it to you again. So I want to make sure I get it right. Rockney and Jones, uh, Notre Dame, USC, and the greatest rivalry of the Roaring Twenties. It's Thomas Rupp. Thank you, Thomas, for coming in studio and and talking about this. Yeah. It's rivalry week, so it's perfect time to do it. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm afraid that's going to be a rough uh, Saturday for the USC fans, but as we found out last week with rivalry games, upsets do happen. They do happen. We'll see. I'm not sure how many USC fans are actually rooting for it to happen, but it's it's Notre Dame. Like you have to, you always feel good. You have to. I, I think the fans that even want Clay Helton gone and would, they'll still feel pretty good if the USC is somehow able to pull off the upset and beat right. Notre Dame. Right. Cool. All right. That's Thomas Rupp. Uh, thanks to him. Thanks to all of you for listening. Uh, uh, Tim O'Malley as well. We did the preview uh, earlier in the episode. This ended up being a longer Wednesday episode than we normally do. Uh, but there was I answered your questions in the middle, but hopefully you guys enjoyed it. We're not doing a tunnel vision this week because it's Thanksgiving. So everyone, happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving to you, Thomas. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Thanks. And everyone. And everyone, thanks for tuning in. We will talk to you next time. Enjoy the game. It could be the last game for USC in the 2018 season, which is crazy. But thanks for tuning in, and we will talk to you next time. You may have noticed that shopping at Trader Joe's is unlike shopping at other markets. People ask us all the time how we manage to have such unique, interesting, and delicious products at such great everyday prices. This is Dan Bain of Trader Joe's. The answer is simple. It's all in the way we do business. We buy directly from the manufacturer whenever possible. This helps to keep our costs low, and we pass those savings on to you. No gimmicks, just great values at honest prices, every day at Trader Joe's. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast, presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. 
Don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your smartphone or tablet for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store.